when you need to present three rules. Tell the truth, tell the truth with a story, and tell that story with pictures. Welcome to the Ideas on Stage podcast, your regular insight into leadership communication. Hi, Dan. Welcome to the show. Andrea, I thank you for having me. Thank you. As, uh, as I said before, before getting started with the recording, thank you so much, Dan, for your time. I, I really appreciate it. Over the years, I've been following your work, I read your books. Uh, I love them. And today we're going to talk about visual thinking, visual communication, visual storytelling. But I would like to start with something which has nothing to do with this. I think we have something in common, Dan. I may be wrong or maybe not. I think... So for sure, I, I like it, but I think you also like all birds, the shoes. Is that correct? Oh, Andre, absolutely. Yes. In fact, at the risk of being just a little bit grotesque, look what I'm wearing yeah. right now. Yes, all birds. I'm a huge fan. How is it that you know anything about all birds? Because I love them too. I, I'm not wearing them now, but I, I, I wear them all the time and uh, I've got different different pairs depending on the weather conditions and i love i love the shoes i love what the company stands for in terms of sustainability transparency i i love them and i saw that you were wearing them on during your tedx talk and, yes. and i think yes. and i think on your linkedin profile or maybe on your website i think i saw that Allbirds is one of your clients. Is that correct? Yes. So for people who don't know, I went ahead and wrote it down. Allbirds is the name. They're a San Francisco-based uh, shoe company. And Andrea, you're right. They have been a client of mine for probably the last four years. Um, the woman who runs their entire uh, human resources department is a long, long friend of mine and one of my most consistent clients. She was, uh, prior to that, she was the head of um, learning and development and human resources at Pete's Coffee. Uh, so I've had a chance to work with her many times and she brought me in at Allbirds, as I say, three or four years ago, explicitly around the idea of internal communications, because um, at the risk of this turning into a conversation about Allbirds, as you pointed out, yes, they're a, a shoe company and they make, in my mind, what is without a doubt the most comfortable shoe uh, I've ever worn, which is why, yes, TEDx talks, now business meetings, uh, now that we're back live, Andrea, doing events in person, I still travel the world and do events. And I'm always in my Allbirds shoes because they are so incredibly comfortable. And to your point, they were also one of the first Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, B corporations. And I don't know if people necessarily know what a B corp is. Yeah, which Does it make it, any yeah. sense to talk about that a little bit? Oh, yeah, or? definitely. It's amazing. Yeah, please do. So, so, this is going to get a little bit into sort of corporate governance and law, but it's interesting. In the United States, there are different types of corporations, uh, S Corp and a C Corp. It doesn't matter. Essentially, what they're trying to do is say that this is an organization that by virtue of being a corporation is an entity and it has like a human being, if you will, uh, a mission and a purpose. And when you're building a corporation, um, you are obligated to put a mission and a purpose down. You say our organization exists to achieve this particular thing. And throughout most of the last 150 years of sort of American business history, 
the goal of a corporation was to produce or manufacture or offer a service and to earn a profit. So when in the past you were making your corporate constitution to define the organization, the mission would be, you know, we're going to make sugary water and we're going to make a profit for our shareholders. And those were the two key things. What are you going to do? And then you're going to make a profit. Well, probably 12, 15 years ago, a new type of corporation was created, which is called the B Corp which is means benefit corporation, which means that by design, this is a corporation that puts into its original constitution, it will deliver a good or a service, it will aim to earn a profit for its shareholders, and as part of its corporate governance, its reason for existing, it will provide some sort of benefit, social, environmental, um, diversified, what have you, it will provide some benefit that is measurable back to the community and it will hold itself accountable to that. Does, does that make sense? It does make a lot of sense and, and I love it as a concept. And now that we are talking about it, Dan, it is my dream to, to make sure that one day ideas on stage, our company becomes a B Corp. We, we haven't okay. done it yet. Um, again, because we are talking about this, it's not something that we that we often talk about. It's not even on our website. But mm -hmm. what we do is we have a social impact project that uh -huh. it's it's the it's the most important thing uh, I do for me, uh, which is called Kids on Stage. So the company is called uh -huh. Ideas on Stage. The project is Kids on Stage, and the idea is that for every new client. Every time we have a client, we pay the school tuition to an underprivileged kid so they can go to school. And we do that because, so first of all, as a training company, we've aligned a brand with a goal or goal number four of the UN goals, quality oh. education. And I think that we can't control someone's background, but what we can do is we can use education to level the playing field so that yes. someone's background doesn't dictate their the future so that's why we have these kids on stage project and but th thank you for 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 bringing this up b corporations and now if we think about the the main topic of our conversation visual thinking visual communication and storytelling in i think it was in your tedx talk you say mm -hmm. that nothing you tell to you tell the audience nothing will be more important to you than your ability to tell the story that matters to you in a way that also matters to the people you share it with. Correct. Can you tell us more about this? Why is that so important? Why is that ability so important? Uh, yeah, absolutely, Andre. I mean, we've heard this a thousand times before, but we do know that humans are fundamentally storytelling creatures. Uh, the way that we evoke our memories and the way that we share our memories and our record of what has happened and therefore set us up for what we're doing and what might happen is through story. Our, our, our memories, for the most part, function as, as stories, and they do alter a bit over time. Um, but if you really think about one of the great tasks that humans or, or op opportunities that humans have is the ability to live out experiences and then share them. And if you think about pretty much the entire nonfiction book industry since it existed for the last 5,000 years. If you, if you think back to the Egyptians and writing stories on, on the walls of tombs, or if you think about the movie industry, or if you think about the game industry, 
um, all of which I've had some opportunity to work in, whether it's books, movies, and games. Uh, and now on an interesting side note, um, over the last few years, uh, the game industry in terms of sheer revenue has outpaced both the movie and music and writing industry uh, enormously. So the next way that we are telling stories or living out stories is through the games that we play. But to answer your original question, you have a story, Andre. I don't, I don't know yours. You and I have been talking for a few moments and I'm, I'm getting some pieces of it. But the most valuable gift any of us have to share with someone else is our story. And what did we learn and what did we experience and how might someone else benefit from that? And that is true for us as people, but I am also, as are you, a, a business person. Uh, and in the world of business, being able to tell your story, whether it's to sell something or to get a job or to convince the board to make a change, to become a B Corp uh, or to find a new investor or to find a new partner, the thing they care about, any one of those audiences or constituents that you're working with, the number one thing they care about more than anything else is your story. You may have a good product, that's awesome, but we love the story of the person who made it or the story of the product. And this is all a long-winded way of saying that your story is probably the greatest gift you have to share with the world. Your ability to tell it well is one of the greatest gifts that you can give to yourself. And I think that, that not only do we love to, to hear someone's story, to listen to it, but I think when we tell a story, our story is also the most unique thing we can, yes. we can talk about. Because yes. somebody may be able to do what you do in a very similar way, your product, your service, but nobody can can copy your your story and this is an insight that i've for our listeners i've gained by reading glow in the dark by mm. mark Rerust, the roost which i've also interviewed for for this podcast mm. and done where does that come from into like from a from a scientific perspective, if there are any scientific elements here, again, if we think about the power of visual storytelling, mm -hmm. visual thinking and communication, I think if you think about what we do, Dan, we are a public speaking presentation skills, training and coaching company. And I believe that a presentation, for example, and we'll get to that as well, because in your one of your latest books, or maybe the latest one, the pop-up page, so you talk about pitching, presenting, a presentation for me is a mix of art and science. So it's not just science, but there is a scientific element. And for me, what that means is that it's important to understand what science tells us about what works and what doesn't work when we communicate an idea. Yeah. So what does science tell us about the importance of visual storytelling? It tells us a lot of fantastic things. And Andrea, thank you for that brilliant question. I'm going to draw something right off the bat. I'm just going to draw, uh, for those of you who are only listening, you'll just have to imagine this. I'm drawing a, a circle about the size of, I don't know, a pancake, a circle the size of a, of a small uh, plate. I'm just drawing it on my whiteboard. And I would encourage anybody who has the ability just to imagine that you're drawing a little circle. Um, that circle represents, let's call it a schematic diagram of the human brain. 
we've got about, I believe it's about 100 billion neurons in our brain. Um, and if you want to think about the sheer number of those that are focused on processing vision, it's about half. More of the human brain is dedicated to processing vision than any other thing that we do. Now, that's true for about 97% of the population. Certainly, there is a, a smaller part of the population that uh, has visual differences or maybe is blind, doesn't see at all. But for the vast majority of people, the bulk of our cognitive load, that is the effort that our brain is going through, is through processing vision vastly more than language, vastly more than any of our other sensory inputs, vastly more than memory. Uh, we are fundamentally, by being virtue of being human, we are walking, talking, visual processing machines. And that's one piece. That's kind of on the vision piece. The other piece of science is about this act of telling a story. And we're going to weave the two together here in a moment. But just think, we are fundamentally visual creatures. Um, that is true for, again, almost all of us. And then let's talk about the story part. So there's a lot of interesting research that has emerged over the last 15 to 20 years. John Medina, who you've interviewed, is, is, is one of the people who's, who's exposed a lot of this. It's become very clear, this notion of brain chemistry. We hear all the time in the business world where our brain is wired to do this. Therefore, we should make businesses that do that. Most of what becomes kind of pop science is a not exactly accurate, but it's directionally interesting that yes, our brain biochemically and neurochemically does work in very specific ways. And increasingly through our understanding of science and functional MRIs, the ability to measure brain activity while someone is doing something, it is possible for the scientists to begin to come up with pretty clear pathways on how on monitoring brain activity during storytelling. And a couple of things are visible when storytelling is going on. When I'm sharing something with you, whether it's through words or more importantly, even through words and pictures and visuals and sometimes music, it literally, Andrea, creates a chemical bond between us. Um, and what that means is, yes, the dopamine and the endorphins and the various drugs that get released on our brain to activate centers of pleasure and centers of memory. When the story is one that we can follow, uh, our brain's chemistry is provably in alignment with that of the storyteller. And it creates a chemical bond kind of across time and across space, across the centuries in many cases, where we are now in chemically in linkage with the storyteller and as and that bond breaks the moment the story stops and that's measurable um and so the science is is kind of incontrovertible if you want to create a bond with someone and maintain that bond tell them a story and then listen to their story that back and forth of storytelling um creates that kind of connection that just isn't done in any other way. And so scientifically, that's part of the reason we love to tell the stories. There's another piece, which is also provable and why I, I love going back to the visuals. Um, there was another recent study that uh, I can send you the, the, the reference to it. It was um, referenced in Time Magazine just a couple of years ago, where a series of universities were working with people um, trying to understand verbal memory. How is it that someone learns a new concept or a new set of words? Like if, if it's time to memorize a poem or learn a word for a new object. And multiple um, different 
test scenarios were played out where a person was asked to learn a new word and try to memorize it or try to write it down or try to visualize it or try to draw a picture of it. And what they found without exception is the number one way to remember something is to draw a picture of it. It's far more effective than trying to memorize it in words. It's even more effective often than trying to act it out. If you want to remember a concept or a word or even a simple phrase, if you draw a picture of it, it encodes it in a way into that vast amount of our visual mind that none of the other activities will do. I hope I'm making the case well, Andre, I could go on, but how does that land with you so oh, far? You, you are, and uh, and it is fascinating. So thank you very much for touching different angles. So a couple of follow-up either questions or, or thoughts here. So one is, you said, well, first of all, you also mentioned John Medina. He says, you're right, the vision trumps all other senses. Uh, sight is the most dominant sense that we have as humans. And so you said that through storytelling, we can we can create a bond with the person, the people we are speaking with. And by the way, you made me think of something that, for example, I love doing, even in a sales conversation. Now, you also talk about sales in, in your work and, and you, the power of visuals from a sales perspective. Now, for example, if we want to build rapport at the beginning of a sales conversation with a potential client, and there are many ways to do that. My favorite, I wouldn't call it technique because it feels like a fake, but the, the, the favorite way I have for me to try and build rapport at the beginning of a sales conversation is to tell my story and yeah. then to say, that's it, enough about me, what about you? And then mm -hmm. they share their story. Right. And, and you're right, it, it works It works really well. The The other thing is, you, you talk about that, not only does storytelling and visual storytelling allow you to create that connection with the person, the people you're speaking with, but it also helps you to simplify your message. Yes, visual does. storytelling and visuals, drawings, pictures, you say that they make complex things simpler. I'd love for you to, to expand this a little bit. Why yeah. is that? Okay. Uh, I'm going to draw this one a little bit too. And I already had this drawing I see on my whiteboard already. Andrea, the reality is the world and life is really, really, really complicated. That is true. There are problems, there are situations, there are complications everywhere. Life is exceedingly complicated. But what we really seek to do to understand something, and we can do it very readily through the use of visuals, is to take that complexity and not necessarily simplify it, but at least clarify it. So can I pull out of this crazy cloud of life and everything that's going on and all the layers and all the connections, if I can pull out the most elemental pieces such that I can at least clarify what it is that's going on, now my brain becomes quite happy. Our brain is not really a simplification machine. It tries to do that, but often that's where we find ourselves in lots of cognitive biases and, and errors when we Simplification tends to lead to oversimplification. So the best we can actually do is maybe not simplify, but just clarify. And if, if the problem, as complex as it is, is at least clear to us, the underlying elements, then we can begin to feel comfortable. And from that sense of comfort, have some confidence in making decisions about how to act that are not as reactive as they would have been if we're just mired in all of this complexity. So that's kind of context. 
the way pictures come in is, um, and this was the research that I was able to do that I found quite fascinating. And again, uh, V.S. Ramachandran, who is a professor at UC San Diego in vision, visual sciences, um, a doctor, Dr. Leo Chalupa, who's now with uh, George Washington University in Washington, D.C. These are people who have actually done the research and have realized that the way vision works, this half the brain that we have, half of these hundred billion neurons that we have, there is an engineering sort of a sense. Now, you can talk about how vision works at many, many, many levels. There is a chemical level. There's a biological level. There's a neurological level. But for those that seek to look at under a sort of unpacking vision from a structural level, what you find is that vision is a process. It's a process just like any other process that we go through, the process of turning carbon into a diamond through lots of time and pressure. There's a, press, there's a process there. Vision works the same way. And that process is virtually identical for every single person in the same way that most of us walk in a very similar way. Yes, there's little nuances, but for the most part, the mechanics of walking are pretty much universal for most every person. Well, guess what? The mechanics of vision are pretty much identical for every person. And you can take apart that process. And as you do that, you realize one of the things that makes vision possible is that the visual engine, everything, our eyes, our, neo, our visual neocortex, the retina on the back of our eyes, all of the pieces that make this entire engine um, break the world down because the visual world is overly complex. There is too much information for our brain to process at any one time. So what our brain seeks to do is clarify the complexity by breaking it down into a series of discrete pathways. And within the visual engine, there is one school of thought, which I think is very valid and it's easy to draw, so it makes sense, it's very clarifying, is that there are essentially five different visual pathways and we can name them. One of them is called the what pathway, which says that when we open our eyes, we look out at the world in front of us and we see objects. I may see a person, or I may see a box, or I may see a tree, or I may see a cat. That's the job of the what pathway is to look out at the world, notice that there's an object, recognize it, say, I've seen that object before, go back into the visual memory banks and say, oh, in English, that thing is called a cat. Now, here's the interesting thing, Andrea, based on our earlier conversation, I understand that you're originally from Italy. Is that correct? Yep. So what it was your the very first language that you learned to speak? Italian. Italian. So I would say cat and you would say. Gatto. Gatto. But here's the thing. If you and I were talking about exactly the same object and if I were to draw one very badly, I would say, you know, something like this. I would say that's a cat. That is our what pathway at work. It doesn't require verbal language to understand it. We all look at that and know more or less what it is. Then later on, we assign the verbal value to it. But our visual engine doesn't need the word. It knows the thing. It recognizes it. And it's very fast. It's estimated that our recognition of the object is about 60,000 times faster than our trying to recall what the name of the object was. And by the way, one of the reasons that I love this visual storytelling is like you, I get to travel a fair amount and I get to meet people often whose language, whose first language is not mine. Sometimes I meet people with whom I have no common spoken language, but guess what? 
if I draw this, we can have a great conversation. Everybody knows what that thing is. So that is just one of the pathways, the what pathway it identifies the objects. And Andre, I won't go on to all of them, but I will illustrate maybe two or three more just because it's a, I find it quite fascinating from the science perspective. We open our eyes. One of the first things our visual engine does is it recognizes the object in front of us. Okay. Another thing that it does is it recognizes how far is that object away from me. That is a completely different process. That's called the where pathway, operating in a completely different part of the visual mind. No association with the what pathway at initial level. The where pathway is our old, the oldest part of our visual engine, and it's there simply to detect are things near me or are they far away? Because evolutionarily, it was important for us in order to survive to identify the things that are close to me are probably more worthy of my attention immediately than the things that are further away. And that evolved over time so that now we have a very sophisticated ability to scan the horizon and say, those trees are very close to me. Those mountains are very far away. That car seems to be coming close to me. And by the way, it's coming faster and faster and faster. I better move. So we have our where pathway. Another one, believe it or not, is we have something called the when pathway. Here's why. At time A, I open up my eyes and I see this a cat. At time B, if the cat is closer to me, my where pathway says, oops, it's much closer than it was before. I now am literally, by watching things move in front of me, I am literally watching the passage of time. The when pathway is our eye's ability to take little snapshots and say, at this moment, here's the position of all the what's and the where's. At this time, at this moment, they're in a different position. At this moment, they're in a different position. And just like an animated film, my mind stitches those together in order to deduce what is the next action I need to take? Is that thing moving towards me or moving away? So I, I just share this with you. There's, if you think about the five pathways, the reason that this is important to a visual storyteller or to any of us is it tells me that the human brain is already predisposed to process the visual world in a very specific way. If I want to tell a visual story, I can be very successful if I just tell my story in exactly the same way that the human mind wants to read it. And that sounds very abstract, but it becomes very simple. If I'm going to tell you a visual story, the first thing I do is I say, I'm going to tell you a story about a cat. And the cat started out five miles away. And then the cat came closer and it came closer and it came closer until finally the cat was sitting right here. And I gave it, a, you know, I gave it a cookie. It didn't eat me and I didn't eat it. We ate the cookie. There's a beautiful story told exactly in the way that my visual mind wants to see the world. Does that, does that make any sense? Yes. And... I think it's very much connected to either something else or maybe the same thing you'll tell us. Because I see there in your whiteboard, clarify. So you said it's not just about simplifying things. It's mm -hmm. about making sure that your message is clear for the audience to follow, understand, and remember. And this makes me think of your book, The Pop-Up Pitch. Mm-hmm where you share a 
sort of 10-step storyline that yeah. does that in, in my mind. Their storyline makes it easier for, for the audience to to follow you and, and remember and understand what you're talking about. So at a very high level, then without getting into the detail of each step, but would it be possible for you to to give us an overview of those 10, 10 steps of a storyline that we can follow for us to be able to create a persuasive page or presentation? Yeah. And I appreciate you, Andrea, asking me to keep it simple. I try to keep it simple and clear, and I get very fascinated by the nature of the story. I'm going to answer this question by telling you a bit of a story. So um, many people know this already. Uh, the story I'm going to share has become very common knowledge over the last 10, 10 years or so, to the point where it's almost become absurd. Um, but there was this fellow named Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell, he was an American. He He lived almost the entire 20th century. Uh, he, he did pass away 25 some years ago. And Joseph Campbell was an interesting guy. He wrote textbooks on anthropology. Uh, he loved studying humans and what he loved more than anything else was studying people's stories. So he spent the entire 20th century traveling around the world. There was a time that he uh, entered an ashram in India, studied the Upanishads and some of the ancient uh, Indian texts. Um, he spent a lot of time in Africa uh, living with different people and trying to understand some of the great stories that came out of Africa. Uh, he studied a lot the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, he spent a lot of time uh, just traveling the world and getting to know what were the great myths, the great myths that seemed to transcend time. We talk about those stories that connect us across the centuries or the millennia. Those are the myths. And what he found no surprise, we know this now, is that almost any of the, the truly classic stories, whether it was the Greek story of Icarus and Daedalus, or whether it was um, the, the, the Ramayana with Rama and Hanuman, um, it, and this isn't to belittle or shortchange any of these stories, because they're all incredibly important to the cultures and the people who created them and told them. And these are the stories that then allow those cultures to thrive by sharing their memories over time. But what Campbell found was, surprise, surprise, almost all of these stories follow the same storyline. And so what he was able to reveal, and he became a big fan of Carl Jung and sort of Jungian psychoanalysis and the understanding of, of common symbols. And at the risk of getting all esoteric, this stuff really matters. And suddenly it, you find out over time that what connects humans as much as any of our base needs about Maslow's hierarchy of needing food and shelter, you don't have to go very high up Maslow's hierarchy to find that we need to be in contact with each other. And we do that through these stories. And what Campbell was able to reveal was that these stories seem to share a common line. We know that in popular in our popular world, the most revealing movie that ever came out that illuminated the so-called hero's journey or the monomyth as Joseph Campbell ended up calling this core myth was Star Wars, George Lucas, who wrote the original Star Wars, which now is called A New Hope, just using word for word the hero's journey, step for step in the way that Joseph Campbell had illuminated in his book. Um, and the book is called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, and it's a great book to read. It's also very difficult to read. Joseph yeah. Campbell, for his as beautiful as his ideas were, 
was not a simple thinker, nor was he actually a particularly clear thinker. There are certain ex certain exceptions there. He synthesized a tremendous amount of information, and the fact that he was able to convert it into this one hero's journey is his greatest clar clarifying gift for the rest of us. So this is all background to answer, Andrea, your original question, which is, I won't go through all 10 parts, but let's put it this way. If you are here and you have an idea to tell and you have someone else that you want to share it with, and at the end of that story, you want you yourself and that person to be even more closely aligned and to have risen up to a higher level of consciousness or a higher level of understanding, or perhaps to be crude about it, a higher level of money. Like I'm going to sell you this thing for more money, or I'm going to sell you more of this. The way that I get you from here to here is not a straight line. Now, this doesn't have to be a buyer and a seller or a business person and a partner. This could be you and I. This could be the head of the tribe trying to talk to the children of the tribe. It doesn't matter as long as there's a party who's sharing a story. And what we find is the best way to tell the story is to establish trust and say, here's where we are now and things are pretty good. And then you say, oops, but something bad is about to happen or something bad has just happened. And that can be a very powerful bonding moment. And so you evoke fear. It's very powerful. There's no doubt about it. But then you don't want to end on a bad note. So that you say, but wait a minute, at the end of that fear, there is hope. If we get past this problem, life will be beautiful. Our things will be solved. The fires will be out. We'll be better friends. And now many people think, okay, so let me introduce my concept or my product at this point. Like, how do I evoke hope? Nope. It doesn't work that way. What you have to do is, sadly, you have to pull the rug out from underneath the feet and say, but guess what? That is not going to happen. That hope that we saw, not going to get there. You know why? Because we don't know how. Because whatever we've been doing up to this point will not work this time. This problem is bigger than any we've ever seen before. It's more threatening. And doing what we've normally done to solve the problem will not work. And otherwise... To put it roughly, we are all going to die. That's not a very good place to end a story either, because that's very sad. And if you end at that point, you are, in fact, literally or metaphorically dead. And that's not where we want to be. So here is the magic turning point in the actual hero's journey. Here's the actual turning point in the story that we always seek to tell. I choose not to die today. I choose not to let this problem be the one that ends life. How am I going to do that? Is that really my choice? No. What we realize in this pit of despair, in the darkest moment of all, think back. Obi-Wan says, I'm here. Use the force. This is where we become aware of the fact that we are not alone. A voice comes back into our head, and it could be something uh, from the spiritual world. It could be a mentor that we had as a child. Very likely, it's one of our parents or our grandparents who's saying, I hear you. I see how bad it is. But you know what? There is a way out. And at that moment, it's recognizing that we are not alone and there is a way out that we begin to say, I remember what hope looked like. Making that decision to not give up today is all that it takes to start to come back up the other side. And as we start to bring ourselves back up by saying, step by step, I can get out of this pit. 
one piece after another, after another, slowly, slowly, I start to build more conviction and more courage that I can do it. And the more I do it, the more I start to accelerate until I find, oh my gosh, not only have I passed the point at which I started my level of happiness or my financial security or my general comfort with the universe, but with the energy that I've developed, I fly way, way, way up here, surpassing where I began by an enormous amount. And then guess what? At the end of this, this is where the real long wind takes place, which more often than not is saying, what is the lesson that I learned down here and sharing it back to someone else? And that is the true hero's journey. Now, how does this work to your question? I seek to tell every business story, every pitch, whether it's for money or whether it's for mindshare or whether it's to try to convince someone uh, that they should exercise more. I tell the story like this. There are other ways to tell the story, Andrea, but if you tell your story, and this could be any presentation that you have to give, if you tell it following this outline, you are guaranteed that your audience will be pleased by the story. There are other ways you can go. The hero's journey story, the monomyth is not the only one, but it is one that you can always rely on as an effective way to build out your presentation. Does that make sense? Yes. And one of the best things you've done in the pop-up pitch in your book is that you took Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, which you're right. It Also, I, I went through it and my opinion is that it's, it's a fantastic piece of work. It's fascinating, but it's not necessarily easy to apply if I think about a business owner, an entrepreneur, a business person yeah. who wants to be able to communicate more effectively. Whereas what you've done is you've taken that journey and you polished it up, you simplified it so that everybody, including especially business people, can apply it. And I think that's 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 super powerful. So So, so thank you for doing that. Well, I, I, you're welcome. <laughs> um, I did it for me. And at the risk of sounding selfish, it's not about that. It's like every one of the people you just mentioned, the business owner, the entrepreneur, the person who needs to pitch, the person who needs to sell, the person who needs to teach. Like you, I am all of those things. And every client that I've ever worked with is all of those things. Even someone who may be the lowest person in a large organization they're still a salesperson. They still got themselves there. They're still an entrepreneur in their own life. They're still, even if, even if someone has just joined a massive 10,000, 100,000 person organization, and they've just come in at the entry level position, well, bless them because they got there and they have a story that got them there and they have a story that's going to drive them forward. And this little storyline will work to help you get the job, uh, to help you sell the product. In, internally or externally, this is the story you seek to tell. I don't know, Andrea, do you, do you have kids? It's none of my business, but I'm asking. Yeah, one. Uh, boy, girl? Boy. And if I'm asked, how old is he? 11 months. Oh, wow. So you, you, depending on many, many factors, you're at the beginning of a new story. You're at the beginning of a new adventure. And I guarantee you, I have two kids. They're older now. My, my daughters are now 24 and 19. So I've been in your position some years ago. Telling this story as a way, what is your, what is your boy's name? If I can ask. Ian. Ian. 
Kian, Kian, K I E N. Oh, Kian, Kian, Kian. One day, in not too many years, three, four years from now, he's going to need to go to kindergarten, and he's going to need to remember to bring his shoes and his backpack and his lunch and probably his iPad or whatever it is, and he will not remember those things um, because it's very hard because there's a lot of things you need to remember. So at some point, you're going to tell him the story about how to remember all the things you need to take to go to school. And he will always remember that story. And if you're an exceptionally good father, who I believe you are, you will not only tell him the story, but you will draw him the story because before Ian is able to read and write, he is absolutely going to be able to recognize anything that we've drawn on this whiteboard. And if you tell him, so here's what I need you to do. I need you to get your shoes and your backpack and things, or else you're going to show up at class and you won't have your shoes or you won't have your iPad and you're going to feel foolish because everybody's going to have their iPad and you will not. So let's make sure. And then by the way, at the end of the day, you're going to come home having learned so much and being so happy. Um, I know I push it, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Imagine, imagine my poor kids went through visual storytelling and visual checklists from the time they were tiny. And that is, I guarantee it, Andrea, how my daughters, both of them remembered in the morning to get everything they needed for school is they literally had a little visual checklist. Um, yeah. All so you, you just said you will not only tell him a story, you will draw a story. And so let's talk about that in the context of sales, mm -hmm. because you say that drawings and pictures are a great way to sell. And I would love, Dan, if you could unpack this insight that I've learned from you. You say that when you lead with the eye, the mind will follow. Yeah. Tell us more. Well, Andrea, um, as we've been talking and I've been drawing on this whiteboard, have you been able to follow what I'm saying? Definitely. And let me ask you this. We've been talking now for almost an hour, which is crazy to me. Has it been boring? No. Very have you, do, do you feel like you, not that you've learned something, but do you feel like you're, you're generally engaged in, in the conversation? 100%. So this is all it is, is if I say, I need you to look at this point, because this is the beginning of the story, or I want us to jump over to this, whatever it is, the end of the story. This is where we are. Or if this was the process and we went around this circle, it all, uh, the, the idea is if I captivate that half of your brain that is always looking for something to look at, if I just feed it drawings or sketches all the time, you are, I always have your attention. The number one way to make sure that you capture someone's mind is to capture their eyes and just keep it going, which is why I have done this through practice. <clears throat> um, thousands and thousands of hours of drawing on whiteboards live, et cetera. So I'm really good at it. And I don't mean that in any grandiose way, just I, I know what I'm doing. But I also know if I have this amount of time with an audience, roughly, if I mark things up at this kind of a cadence, if I refresh what's on the, the, the picture, every two to three minutes, attention will never vary. And this is so important for us now, especially that we're in an increasingly remote presentation setting, where let's face it, the last four years, we used to joke about death by PowerPoint. Now it's real. I, I, I'm sitting here all day long watching one 
PowerPoint or Google Slides presentation after another, after another, and I'm losing my mind, the one antidote you have, Mr. or Ms. Presenter, is during your presentation, draw or mark up what you're working on. It is the one way remotely that we can simulate an emotional connection aside from storytelling in real time with our audience. Does, does that make any sense? And, and also on top of that, there's one, uh, one thing, one tip, a practical tip or insight that I've learned from you in your work, in your writing is the idea of sharing your pen. So not only do you want to draw something to, to keep the audience engaged and to, to keep their attention high, but you talk about the importance of sharing your pen to draw something together, which may mean, for example, that you, as the presenter or communicator, you draw maybe something up to 75% and then you let you invite the other person to complete the, the exercise or, or the drawing. Again, can you can you tell us more about these and and why it matters? Yeah, it goes back. What Andrea? What great questions! I think in essence, <clears throat> what you're asking goes back to this idea of the power of telling and sharing a story. And there is a tendency among all of us who present, and I am as much an awful example of this as anyone, is to think, oh, look. I'm a very famous author and I've sold lots and lots of books and I'm being invited onto the stage to tell a great story. The reality is my story is really not very consequential in truth to someone else because we've all got our own story going. So if we kind of weave together things we've talked about, one of the greatest gifts you have to share with someone else is your story and it is unique. And it probably follows a, 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 some sort of path that is shared among us. As you're telling your story, everybody in their own mind is playing out their own, looking for a way into yours. Does it align with mine? Do I agree? Does that make sense? Does your story help matter to my situation? We, as a storyteller, as a presenter, have to keep open to the fact that we've only got a little bit of the story to tell. The rest is there in the audience. And it's difficult to do in a remote session like this. But in a small group session, one of the greatest things is to start it and then hand this over and say, what do you think the connection is? And now what was my story begins to shift towards yours. And the best thing we can have is maybe it becomes our story. And now we actually have that truly human connection that is what we're seeking. Um, any tool that you can bring that says, I'm, I'm done. I've shared with you what I want. What do you think? Tell me yours. Any tool we can bring to bear will be valuable to make that connection. I love that. I love that, Dan. And and that's, I've learned over the years, I've learned so many things from you, from your books. And uh, that thing is just a very specific thing, but I found it fascinating and I love it. Well, but one thing, if I might, Andrea, just to simulate um, when we are working in a remote environment and we don't actually have the ability to hand the pen back and forth, two two insights come to mind and these are very practical. For, you know, I, I am a business person who's trying to share information online, just like everybody who's listening to this. And a couple of practical pieces of advice, maybe three of them. If you are giving a presentation, 
draw on the screen while you are presenting. It is the number one way to differentiate and make sure that your message is getting across in a way that retains attention. It's very easy to do in PowerPoint because PowerPoint has built-in drawing tools. It's very difficult to do in Google Slides because Google Slides do not have the drawing tool. The best you have in Google Slides is you have the little pointer device that you can light up and circle things. So do that. I actually do a lot of work with Google and I keep trying to encourage them to activate a drawing feature within Google Slides because I, it's the only thing at this point that PowerPoint has over Google Slides. And the, and the only reason I continue, I, I like PowerPoint, I like both products, I both work with both companies, but I encourage the people at Google. So item one, mark up your slides while you draw. So item two, how do you do that? As, as Andrea said, Draw in advance or create using PowerPoint shapes or Google slide shapes or whatever. Create about 80% of the slide. And the last 20% is what you are going to simply mark up by saying, this piece connects to this piece. And this is the box that I'm actually trying to sell you. This is the one, this red box is the one that really matters the most. Forget this one over here. It's that markup, the last 20% that really makes so much of the difference. And then the last thing I would say would be, um, don't be afraid of drawing. 75% of people, when I walk into a business audience, say, Dan, I'm terrified to do what you're asking me to do. I haven't drawn anything since I was in kindergarten. Andre, I understand. However, look at this whiteboard. These are not sophisticated drawings. It's very important to remember that the type of visual thinking drawing that we're, we're discussing is not about art. It's not about making something beautiful. It's not an artistic process. It's a thinking process. And all we're trying to do is show the clarity of our idea with the simplest possible shapes we can draw. I hope, I hope that's good yeah. practical advice. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. And also, in addition to business people who are afraid of drawing, do you get also sometimes resistance from either clients or people in your network because, for example, if if I think about what we do at Ideas on Stage, often we do get resistance from people who are who've been used to present in a certain way for twenty years, for thirty years. Mm -hmm. The typical death by PowerPoint, as you mentioned, right. and so right. when you invite them to think about a new way, a new approach to presentation, preparation, design, and delivery, sometimes there's resistance. Yeah. Do you get do you get something similar resistance when it comes to inviting people to use visual thinking and, and storytelling approaches? Of course. Um, and the first level of resistance is the one you already identified. It's just inertia oh, uh, or, or lack of momentum. Uh, people have been doing something in a particular way and somewhere along their career, they were taught that was the right way to do it. And <clears throat> when it comes to PowerPoint, we are uh, or, or Google Slides. Um, we are not a very innovative group, business people. We, we sit through hours of awful PowerPoint and then we go and we hate it. And then it's our turn to speak and we do exactly the same thing. Uh, and it's just that that's kind of Einstein's definition of insanity, you know, keep doing the same thing over and over expecting a different outcome. So there's a lot of resistance just from inertia. Like this is the way it's supposed to be done. Why would I do it differently? Um, the second kind of resistance is I think uh, there's no way to address that one other than to say, well, if you want to keep doing it the same old way, that's fine. And how's that working out for you so far? And 
many people will just want to keep doing their thing and that's fine. I'm not going to worry about it. Um, but the second kind of resistance is, is a little more subtle, which is um, twofold. Dan, that doesn't look very professional. And if I were to draw that and I'm trying to sell a multi-million dollar uh, technology solution, it, that doesn't look professional. I say, okay, in your final presentation, you probably won't draw, but that's not the presentation during which you actually make the sale. The real sale is made in the conversations that take place before, around, and after that particular meeting where drawing like this is perceived not necessarily as professional, but very thoughtful. If, if you can draw a picture like this of the technical architecture that you're trying to sell to the client for $100 million, if you can draw it like this, they will perceive you as a true expert rather than the showman who's you know flashing beautiful three-dimensional extruded objects with sound and things. This is very human and very real. So one part of resistance is it's not professional. And the answer to that one's very simple. Use your emotional intelligence. And this only comes with the experience in business. But you and I know there are certain meetings you're going to go to where you're wearing a suit and a tie. That's a fact. And there are other meetings that you're going to go to where it's okay to come in in shorts and all birds. And those are not the same meeting. And it's only up to you. You have to learn some experiences, which one is the most appropriate. So this approach is a little bit like coming into a meeting casual, attentive, but casual. Um, the more <clears throat> buttoned up approach, of course, is more like wearing a suit. So you have to make the call, but here's what matters, I think. A few years ago, I had an opportunity to do some work with uh, President Obama's White House, the White House Office of Communications. So going to the White House Office of Communications, which isn't actually in the White House, it's in the Eisenhower office building, which is across the street from the, from the White House. Did I wear a suit? Let me ask you, do you think that I wore a suit knowing that I was going to meet the president's team? I think you did. I absolutely did. It's a sign of respect. It's understood that when there's meetings of state, heads of state, whether you like them or not, or whether whatever, we understand that there's a protocol that's been, you show respect. I, I look my best, not my worst. But then there's a meeting that comes later on where someone says, can you come over just, you know, to, to the room later on and let's just work the problem and come casual. It's a little bit like that. This is the casual approach. Uh, more formal PowerPoint or Google Slides is the dressed up in a suit approach, but here's where they come together. Even when you're wearing your suit, you have a very buttoned up, very polished, beautiful PowerPoint. You still are going to take the pen and say, this is the part that really matters the most. And now they're going to see both the human dynamic and the fact that you're showing professional respect. This is very much aligned to a piece of advice I got many years ago from my business mentor. His name is Daniel Priestley. He's the founder mm -hmm. of Dent, Dent Global. And okay. many of the things I know about business, I know them thanks to, to Daniel and his company. And one specific thing he told me is that, especially in a sales conversation, one of the most powerful things you can do is to draw. And I've learned that many years ago, th thanks to Daniel, and you are saying the same thing. So mm. that's, that's good to know. That's great. And recently, I saw a post 
that you published on LinkedIn. I think you did it maybe many months ago. I don't remember now, but I saw you recently where you shared, I loved it, you shared the first ever sketch of Mickey Mouse. Yeah. And and you use it as an example of to, to demonstrate the, the power of a very simple sketch on a piece of paper. For those who know, well, many people know the, the story of Mickey Mouse and everything. And, and actually, recently, I watched a great documentary. I think it was called Walt Before Mickey, mm. which is the story of Walt Disney before Mickey Mouse. Mm-hmm. And have you, but, but, but just so I know, have you, have you seen the documentary? No, I haven't. I, the reason I, where I took the photo and I don't want to get you off path, I want to hear it. But just so you know, is here in San Francisco, we have what's actually called the Walt Disney Family Museum, which is a museum. It sounds very similar to the movie you're describing. It's a beautiful museum in San Francisco where thousands of artifacts from Walt Disney and his brother, uh, their life, their parents, their grandparents, um, are there in the museum. And that's where all the original drawings are. And from many of the movies as well. It's fascinating. But uh, Andrea, please continue. I don't want to take no, you off path. It's not even a question. It's I just I would like to, to hear your thoughts on on this particular example. Uh, because yeah, that, that documentary is just it simply takes you through Walt Disney's story and what he had to do, what he wanted to do before he became famous, which yeah. was many, many years. And and everything started now. What what we know today, everything started with that very simple sketch. But I, yeah. I would stop here. Do you have any any other thoughts here to to share when it comes to Mickey Mouse, that particular sketch, and the power of it? Yeah, I haven't thought about this when it was several months ago. I went to the museum, Andrea, and and. and... Here's here. It was a transcendent moment for me. Look, whether you love Disney or not, I happen to love Disney. I think I think, yeah, you know, today we're, we're really beating up anything in our culture that whatever. But for me, growing up and throughout my life, um, Disney and all of its manifestations has been a positive memory and a positive light for me. For me, too. Um, it, 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 many people share that. And our, but the most important point is that Disney is also. Today, again, for good or bad, I believe the most influential storytelling organization in the history of the planet, more than any church, more than any religion. I mean, the religion of Disney is one of values that are very clear, and we all subscribe to it, whether you go to Disneyland Tokyo or Disneyland Shanghai or Disneyland Paris or Disneyland what have you. And obviously, there's lots of cultural issues going on right now in Florida, where Disney values are coming into conflict with Florida values, whatever that's about. Um, But the point I want to make is that this organization is the most influential storytelling organization in the history of the planet. Um, And its iteration in modern time began with a pencil sketch that Walt Disney drew on a train while he was going to a meeting and he had always been thinking about characters that he would put into these stories that he sought to tell. And he happened to draw a little mouse and it had two big round ears that were the same size as its head. And it became very, very easy to draw because you could draw the mouse just by going like this. And the first drawing, there it is. It's almost Forgive me, I'll probably offend many people, but being in the museum, it was almost like looking at a kind of a religious artifact. Like here is on paper, 
you see the hand of the creator, in this case, Walt Disney, creating this mouse. And think about the catalytic moment that that was, that that character has come to symbolize so much of, you know, here we are, early 21st century, what we choose to believe about the power of people and story. It's extraordinary. Thank you for letting me share that. It was a beautiful moment. Thank you for sharing it because I found it fascinating. And Andrea, I'm going to talk over you because I had an equally powerful moment two weeks ago. I was recently in Washington, D.C. at the Martin Luther King Museum in Washington, D.C. They have a tiny and beautiful exhibit of 14 of Leonardo da Vinci's original drawings. These, these drawings never travel outside of Italy and they've never been put together before, but this exhibition is remarkable and it's just one room and the room is completely dark. But what they've done is the drawings are not big. Each one is about like the size of a letter size sheet of paper, like an A4, uh, eight and a half by 11 size sheet of paper. And they're behind plates of glass and they're lit. And you look at them and the detail, it's exactly the same thing of all of the things that we know about Leonardo da Vinci, whether it's painting, the world's most successful painting, the Mona Lisa, Gioconda. It's that guy did that and he painted the Last Supper and he invented the helicopter and created guns and cannons and water systems and pumps and pulleys. And to see his drawing, just like Walt Disney's drawing of Mickey Mouse. Here you see in Leonardo da Vinci's own hand with a red crayon, like a red pencil, the drawing of the wing of the ornithopter, the human powered bird, like there's the first drawing. It's an equally religious moment. It's so valuable. Like these ideas come from people's mind executed through drawing. Why wouldn't we all do that? I stand down. Thank you for letting me get emotional. <laughs> and by the way, Leonardo da Vinci, what a genius. Mm -hmm. What a genius. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, so done. As we approach the end of our conversation, which has been fantastic, th thank you very much. Beyond your own books, which I'm going to include all of them in the in the show notes, and I recommend all of them. I've read blah blah blah, Draw to Win, the pop up nice. page, thank and you. of course, back back of the napkin. Uh, so I'm going to include all of them. But if you think about what we talked about today, the visual communication, storytelling, visual thinking, do you have any other, could be one or it could be more than one, any other books or resources in general that you would recommend to a listener, to a listeners? Oh, yeah, there are so, so many. Um, and it's very hard just to think of a couple. But um, there is a book called The Storyteller's Journey. I believe the author's name is Christopher Vogler or Christopher Vogel. Uh, it's easy enough to check it out. It is um, Christopher Vogler. It's called the 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 um, the Storyteller's Journey. It is his very easy to read deconstruction of Joseph Campbell's work. And Christopher Vogler is a Hollywood-based screenwriter and has coached many, many people on creating screenplays that have done very, very well. And if you really want to get a sense of how to tell a beautiful story using variations of the hero's journey, it's not really about that. It's, it's more just what is the important part of each moment in this? It's a magnificent, it's a magnificent book. Um, so I would strongly recommend that one. And, um, in terms of visual thinking, there's a very old book 
but I remember it back from when I was in high school, drawing on the right side of the brain, um, which was written, her name slips my mind right now, uh, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. It's an old I'll, book. I'll find it. I'll find it. Yeah, but it, but as a classic. And then for, I'll include it in the show notes for everybody. Please else. do. And I'm so sorry, I can't recall her name right now because she's a real hero of mine too. Um, but those two books, they're, they're, they're not like in the modern press. They're not, hey, bleeding edge right now, right now. There's so much there. But those are two classics that are really, really worth looking into. Which is even better, I guess. So if, if, if a book- They've stood the test of time. Yeah. Exactly. Great, great. Perfect. Thank you. And uh, Dan, if anybody wants to connect with you or, or find you, where do they find you? Where should they go? Oh, I'm so easy to find. Um, I am simply danrome.com. And Andrea, I have a online training academy, napkinacademy.com that offers both free lessons and subscription-based lessons for people who want to join me every month. In fact, the new course just launched uh, um, a month ago. It's a year-long course where we are writing books together because I'm working on my seventh book now. Um, and I've done this three times in a row. The last three books I have written with a team and I just open it up. And as I'm writing my book, uh, for people who join through Napkin Academy, I encourage them to write their book in parallel with mine. And we've had many people uh, who've been able to write their book in the year-long process that I take, writing their own in parallel and having this tribe of like-minded people. We set ourselves homework. We get to every month, every month. Uh, we review each other's work. We share it. Um, and so that's interesting for anybody who has a book in them and wants to see it um, come to fruition. And you'll get a chance to see my my seventh book, which I'm completely in love with. It's quite different from my previous, but I'm working on it now. Okay, perfect. So if you don't mind, two quick follow-up questions. One is, so you said that the Academy started a month ago. If people are interested, can they join now or do they need to wait for next year's? No, moment? it's a 13-month program. And we are now, uh, we have had two of the lessons. We have 11 months to go. Um, and you can join now. And all of the lessons are, of course, recorded so you mm -hmm. can watch them. So if you were to join in now, um, you would be with us for the vast majority of the program. And you, you're not really behind if you were to join right now, um, because all we've done up to homework at this point is have people create a very, very simple two to three sentence outline of what their book might be about. And then the last session, we actually had my literary agent, a guy named Ted Weinstein, who has sold my six books to the publishers over the last uh, 12, 13 years. He came on for the hour and coached people on how to find a literary agent if you want to go the traditional publishing path. What's the difference between traditional publishing and self-publishing and hybrid? So I always like to bring in practical lessons and we'll have other guests, some of whom have people who've been on your program who will be joining us over the coming year as well. Perfect. So I'm, again, I'm going to include the, the links in the show notes. Uh, and also, I don't know if it's top secret. If not, can you tell us anything about the, the new book? Sure. Oh my God, we could talk for days. Um, part of my story, Andrea, is that I am the child of two pilots. I grew up in a family of pilots. Both my mother and my father were pilots. My father was in the Air Force and my mother was an air traffic controller. Uh, both of them were flight instructors and I got my pilot's license um, by the time I was uh, 18 years old. So I learned to fly and flew quite a bit for several years. So um, aviation has always been 
in my uh, blood and in my my family. And as I've traveled the world, uh, an interesting phenomenon I've noticed, and I have, I've lived in lots of different countries. I've been very blessed with lots of travel. There's a funny thing that happens when I meet people. Uh, within about five minutes, I'll look at someone and I'll say, wait a minute, are you a pilot? And they'll say, yes, how did you know? And we will start, and the conversation will completely sh switch. So the book is called How We Soar, 10 Secrets Aviation Teaches About Making Impossible Dreams Come True. And it is a guidebook for making your most audacious dream come true by looking at the history, the incredibly miraculous history of aviation, because here's why. Just over 100 years ago, people had dreamed of flying for at least 10,000 years, but never been able to do it, including Leonardo da Vinci and the Greeks and the Egyptians. Um, every one of those myths that we shared about Joseph Campbell contains flight. One of the greatest human dreams since the beginning of time has been to fly, and we could never do it. And then just over 100 years ago, a couple of brothers who were motorcycle, or I'm sorry, bicycle mechanics, um, managed to make it happen. And within months, people around the world were flying. And within years, anybody who wanted to could fly. And within one human lifetime, after arguably 50,000 years of trying and failing, in one human lifetime, we went from a world in which nobody had ever been on an airplane to where any one of us with a little bit of money, is happy to jump on a jetliner and fly from here to Rome overnight. And along the way, I eat a movie, I, I, I eat a meal, I watch a movie, and I don't even think about it. And by the way, statistically, the safest place I can be on the planet today is actually on a commercial airliner in flight, in the most dangerous environment on the planet. At 30,000 feet, where the temperature is 50 degrees zero, below zero, both Fahrenheit and centigrade, you're traveling at nearly the speed of sound, if you were not in that airplane, you'd be instantly dead. And that is the safest place you can be. Statistically, you're safer on an airplane in flight than you ever were in your mother's arms as a baby. How did we do that? It's not magic. It's not a miracle. It's not an act of God. It's because people were able to have a clear vision, share that vision, and working together, and sometimes, very often, working in opposition. Many of the great technologies of aviation were born from war and hate. That is true. And yet all of them come together to give us this gift where I can fly to visit you tomorrow if I wanted to. How did that happen? Because we chose to make it happen. And if humans can do that, I firmly believe we can do anything. Climate change, we can fix it. Poverty, we can fix it. Inequity, we can fix it. If we can fly because we chose to do it, we can do anything. And that's what the book's about. Wow. Wow, I, I didn't expect that, and <laughs> nor did I. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it, and I, I never thought about the the time scale that that you that you gave us. What happened before we started flying, and how long it took us to to get there, and then the the difference from since when we started doing it. So it's, yeah, it is fascinating, and also, and then we'll we'll close because I want to respect your time. Then. The I read a great book, maybe a couple of years ago by um, I don't, again I don't remember his name. He's, he's quite famous in the UK. Uh, Black box thinking. I don't know whether sure. you. Yeah, um, I, I'm not sure. I was thinking. Uh, uh, go on. Black box thinking, which is the author compares the aviation industry 
to the um, to hospitals i don't know how, how to call that the industry and using aviation as the benchmark mm-hmm. because of the black box and and what you can learn when when something happens that's the aviation in- industry has always been transparent and not trying to hide things and mistakes but trying to understand from them uh it's, it's a great book with, with lots yeah. of science research data Again, I don't remember the author, but it's, it's, it's a good one. Yeah, black box thinking. Okay, yeah. done. So last question, and then we close. If you think about everything we talked about today, let's say that somebody watches this conversation or listens to the, to the just listens to it. And let's say that after a while, they forget everything. Not because of you, hopefully not because of me, but just, just because that's that's what happens. But let's say that they remember one thing. Mm-hmm. And if they remember that thing, you will be happy. What's that thing? What's the most important thing people need to remember from this conversation? When you need to present three rules, tell the truth, tell the truth with a story, and tell that story with pictures. Great. So that's a great, very relevant to our audience. Uh, and yes, you do. One of the things you say is that if you want to give a great presentation, don't think about presenting. You say just mm-hmm. tell a story and tell the story with with pictures. Amazing. The first rule there was tell the truth. Yeah. Whatever your truth is, it's your head, it's your heart, your feet. Maybe it's popular, maybe it's unpopular, but if it's your truth and you have passion behind it, tell it. And it will always generate energy that you lying will never do. Plus, if you tell the truth, as Mark Twain said, if you tell the truth, you never have to remember anything. And since I have a terrible memory, that helps a lot. So, (laughs) definitely, Andrea, it's been a sheer pleasure. Thank you for letting me share so so much. Um, The pleasure uh, was mine. I feel honored, privileged for for having had the opportunity. We were talking about it before, before starting the recording. Uh, I had the opportunity to interview uh, many of the people you know, Seth Gordon, Carmine Gallo, Gar Reynolds, John Medina that you mentioned today. And you are, for me, the same level as as, as these fantastic uh, authors and, and professionals. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And if I ever come to in the near future to San Francisco, I'll let you know. If you ever come to yes. London, please feel free to to let me know. Absolutely. Andrea, thank you so much. Real pleasure. All the best. If you enjoyed this episode of the Ideas on Stage podcast, there are many more you might like. So please subscribe, leave us a review, and tell us what you think. You can find many more ideas on business communication at ideasonstage.com or by searching for Ideas on Stage on iTunes, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and goodbye for now.